The reading for this morning is Philippians chapter 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. We're in our fifth week in the book of Philippians. We're still, we're finishing up chapter 1, 27 through 30. We just read that. And it's been great so far. I hope you agree on that. But before we dive in, I just had a question for you all. Where is the place that when you think of it, um, out of any other place in the world, that it's, it's, it's home? Where is the place for you that is home? And it could be your actual home. It could be the mountains. It could be the beach. It could be a smell that reminds you of what you think of as home. And so whatever that is, I want you, 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 know, you know when you're there, and when you're there, you, you just want to sigh and say, this is home. So do you have that? Do you have that image? Do you have that thing in your mind? Well, I'm going to read uh, an excerpt from The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, and uh, he speaks to this, and it's just a brilliant um, piece of writing, of course, from C.S. Lewis. He says this, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find it in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism in adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and, ha- and behave as if that had settled the matter. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their whispers, I'm sorry, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. We all have this longing for home, yet we know we're not there yet. We have this sense that maybe we've been there before, we've caught a glimpse of it, but it's only the sense of a flower that we've never seen, as C.S. Lewis says. The Bible tells us all over that we are not home yet, that it's coming, that we're in exile right now, we're sojourners, we're just passing through, and this morning we'll continue to look at Philippians, and this morning's text will speak, I think, right into what home truly is. 
as we've uh, talked about the last uh, few weeks, uh, the book of Philippians is a is a book, or actually a letter written by Paul to the Philippian church. Um, the first church he he planted in like southern Europe, and along his journey, and it's a very um, very encouraging letter. It's a letter to encourage the church to press on with their advancement of the gospel, to keep going, to keep going. There's not a lot of instruction, not a lot of um, rebuke or admonishment. It's just encouragement. Keep going, keep going in the face of opposition. This morning's no different. And, and so it's meant to be read in one as one letter. So I encourage you to maybe even each week read the book, the whole book of Philippians, maybe once a week in this series and go back and listen, because it'll really provide context for um, this morning and the rest of the weeks. So this morning, we're just it's a simple layout for those of you who like to be organized and think through, um, take outlines. Um, we're going to go through it in, in the form of questions. So the first question we're going to ask of the text is, um, who should proclaim the gospel? Who should proclaim the gospel? The next is, what gospel should we proclaim? Then, how? We should proclaim the gospel. And then when and where should we proclaim the gospel? And then why? Why should we proclaim the gospel? So hopefully the text, hopefully we'll see that, although the answers to those questions in the text this morning. Um, who, what, how, why, when, where, um, all about the gospel. So verse 27, we'll start there. We're going to dive in says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll just look at that phrase right there. Some of your Bibles might have a footnote, only behave as citizens worthy. I like the Christian standard Bible version here. Just one, just one thing it says, as, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. You could also translate it this way. As citizens of heaven, live a life consistent with the good news of Christ. As citizens of heaven, live a life consistent with the good news of Christ. Remember that Philippians is a letter, as we said, meant to be read all at one shot. So, so even though we're going doing a multiple week study of it, it all ties together. And Paul uses this word citizen very purposefully in this letter. He doesn't use it this way in any other letter. He uses it twice in Philippians, once here and in Philippians 3.20. Uh, 3, Philippians 3.20 says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippi um, was a little miniature Rome, um, filled with Roman uh, pride. Um, people were proud to be Roman citizens in this in this city. It was a popular city. It was, it was big, uh, more than 100,000, maybe a couple hundred thousand people. It was on a trade route. It was a very popular place um, for soldiers who were who served the Roman uh, Empire to retire there. And so there was a there was a um, a Greek uh, kind of a Greek culture that was overlaid with a Roman culture um, of just this national pride, this this um, this patriotic. Um, nationalism, and they were really proud of their citizenship, their Roman citizenship. So here's this verse, as citizens of heaven, we need to live lives consistent with the good news of Christ. So Paul speaks right into that culture, and he says, no, your citizenship's not just of Roman uh, descent or Roman uh, identity, but your citizenship as believers is in heaven. So what does is, what is consistent with or worthy of the gospel mean here? 
in the context of Philippians, which is primarily a letter of encouragement from Paul, right, to press on, to keep advancing, partnering the gospel. This doesn't mean here worthy to receive the gospel, just to receive it or, or to be saved by it, but rather worthy to carry it along, worthy to be a messenger of it, to advance it. That's the context of the letter. The gospel is news. It is a good message and a message that is taken. It's not just a written message. It's not just a text. It's a message that's delivered. The gospel is a message that can't be separated from the messenger. And this is why our conduct is paramount that we would behave as citizens worthy because the message of the gospel is inextricably linked with the messenger. Matthew 4.23 says this, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It began, the gospel began with the true gospel messenger, Jesus And not only did he speak the good news of the kingdom, he was the good news of the kingdom, the king himself of the message. And then the apostles carried it, and Paul, and now we do. So the way in which we carry it should be consistent with our citizenship in heaven. So let's talk about this idea of citizenship for a second. What characterizes citizenship on earth is first We'll talk about earthly citizenship. What what characterizes citizenship on earth is first situational or circumstantial citizenship. We founded this country on circumstantial and situational hopes and dreams. Our highest ideals were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To be a citizen of the U.S. is to uphold those ideals. We have held them up so high we call them rights now. Rights. And once we have these circumstances in place, then we see that we are able to have relationships second, and families second, and we can form communities with other citizens in peace, our circumstances being intact first. So what will make citizens of an earthly kingdom fight quicker than anything else is when their way of life is threatened, their circumstances are threatened. When an external force or kingdom threatens the removal of these circumstances and situations, it's the quickest route for war or revolution. And historically, we fight to keep these circumstances intact, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that's earthly citizenship. What is heavenly citizenship? What characterizes citizenship in heaven is first relational and second situational or circumstantial. It's first relational and second circumstantial. The first thing, the highest ideal, the hope and dream for our citizenship in heaven is a relationship with a person the King of heaven, God himself. There's no higher citizenship ideal than being in an intimate relationship with the ruler of heaven, God. And second, relationship with his people. If our citizenship is in heaven, it is relational first. So our citizenship and our circumstances could be threatened, but our citizenship remain intact. Because that's not the basis of our citizenship. And because no one can separate us from the love of God that relationship, what, which is what fundamentally makes us citizens of heaven, namely that relationship with him, then we, we become indestructible to anything an earthly kingdom could throw at us because the most they can do is threaten the removal of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But that's not all that makes us 
a citizen, right, of heaven. So what should make us fight first is when we see either from within or from without the relationship with our king threatened to be removed. And, and I don't mean removed as in, as in, you know, our salvation is removed because we don't believe, we believe that once you're saved, you're secure. But removal in this case is the removal of its central importance, as citizens, if, 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 if the center of our citizenship, which is our relationship with God, is removed from the center, and it's removed from the center of our message, then we fight. Then, then we need to rise up and challenge that. Because it's, it's, it's at the core of, of what makes us citizens. So number one, here's the first question we talked about in the outline. Who should proclaim the gospel? Who? It's simple, right? All those who are citizens of heaven. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to not live it as citizens of earth first, but of heaven first. Of heaven first. Where we, where we are more concerned with making our relationship with God great than our circumstances great. And this is all over Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We talked about that last week. The, the contrast between earthly and heavenly citizenship. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Listen to just this, this, this uh, theme all the way through Philippians, challenging this citizenship idea. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, there's a relationship. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is letting go of circumstances and holding on to what? The relationship. Relationship. Philippians 3, 17 through 20. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have, you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And these are people who are whose citizenship is based on, on earth. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And we read this before. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's about him. It's about the person. 4.11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He learned the secret of contentment because his citizenship's not based on earth and circumstances is based on a person. So you don't, it doesn't matter if you remove good circumstances from a person whose citizenship is in heaven. They're indestructible because they have a relationship that holds them together. 419. And my and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So every need, every circumstance will be supplied in a person. And then and then other books of the Bible speak of this too. We already talked about there's the the thought that were exiles and there were sojourners. First Peter 1 1. He addresses these believers that he's writing to as exiles. First Peter 2 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners wanderers, nomads, and exiles to abstain from the passage of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. How do we know? Here's the question, though. 
There's the contrast, and here's the question. How do we know if we are living more as citizens of the earth than citizens of heaven? Here, here it is. When dying starts looking more and more like loss instead of gain. When dying starts looking more like loss instead of gain. We live in a little heaven on earth here. We've created these little kingdoms where we try to make our comfy circumstances more and more permanent. Our goal is to make our normal life as close as we can to a permanent vacation. To Windsorites, to to Northern Coloradoans and Americans, heaven is starting to look less and less like an upgrade, like a 2.0. Our comfort and our circumstances are idols of our earthly citizenship, and they're the number one deterrent for living a life consistent with the gospel. This is my um, new definition of idol. Um, I don't know if this works for you. It works for me. This is what an idol is. Um, it's anything in my life that I'm not willing to tear down. Anything in my life that I'm not willing to tear down. Look at the scriptures. God doesn't, God doesn't tear down our idols in the Bible, those circumstances that we love from earth. Pe- people do. People tear down idols, at least the faithful ones. You know, like King Josiah in 2 Kings, you can look at it. Is there anything we we have as earthly citizens we are not willing to tear down? We need to go to the high places in our in our in our life and and find those find those Asherah poles uh, that Josiah did. You know, find those high places and tear them down. Is there anything you're not willing to tear down? Whatever it is. It's the thing that's keeping you from living a life consistent with the gospel and consistent with your citizenship in heaven. Number two, what gospel should we proclaim? So our gospel message, the good news we proclaim about Christ, should come out of our citizenship in heaven, not on earth. It should come out of that. Therefore, the gospel we proclaim should be first relational and not situational or circumstantial. First relational, not circumstantial. So I've heard someone say that the problem with the prosperity gospel is not the message, but the timing. God does want to prosper you. He will give you great circumstances and situations. He does promise prosperity for his people, just not in this life. You can't have your best life now, but you can have it later. But I would go further. I don't think the timing of this gospel is the primary message, or the primary problem, rather. Not the timing. This is why the prosperity gospel is so insidious, so corrupt, so messed up. It's because it's trading the fundamental characteristic of what makes us citizens of heaven, which is relationship, for the fundamental characteristic of what makes a citizen of earth, circumstance. It's saying that what you really need What will ultimately satisfy you is situational, not relational. Circumstances, not a a relationship. The prosperity gospel is so wrong because it's making stuff, circumstances, situations, the highest end. The greatest thing we can hope for. Not a person, an intimate relationship with our God and Savior. So what gospel are we proclaiming? What gospel... Are we telling our kids? What's the good news that we're sharing with our neighbors and coworkers and family members, assuming we're sharing it? Is it a relational gospel or a situational gospel? Um, what, is, what is the greatest hope that the highest end in our gospel message? 
Because if we're sharing a gospel message that doesn't end in the arms of our Lord and Savior in an intimate relationship with Him, then we aren't really sharing what is really the good news. If the best we have to offer is, you know, Jesus lived a perfectly um, and died sacrificially for your sin so that you won't have to die and go to hell, but so you could go to uh, heaven and have eternal life, that's not good enough news. Because people's fundamental problem is not situational, but relational. The biggest problem that the lost people in our lives have isn't that they're going to a place called hell. And the greatest thing they need isn't getting to a place called heaven. They don't need a new circumstance first. They need a person first. The deepest longing of our hearts isn't circumstantial, but relational. We want to be known and to know. And one of the great difficulties in being a Christian here in Windsor, Colorado, is that our relational citizenship in heaven is so easily eclipsed by our situational citizenship of Windsor, Colorado. We tend to view everything through a grid of circumstance first and relationship second, and it colors how we see the world and what we think people need around us and the gospel message that we proclaim. So church family, if our citizenship is in heaven and it's relational first, then our gospel message should be too. Don't get people to heaven, get people to a person. Let's continue on in the passage. Verse 27b, continued. I'm going to read. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So you hear a so that. All that came before it um, leads to this, so that, whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent. And I remember last week, you know, Paul, he's longing, he's in prison, and he's longing to see the Philippians, but he's actually longing more to be with Jesus. And, and so he's conflicted between the two, but then he says, but I must remain for your sake. It means fruitful labor for me. And so he's fully expecting to go to them. But then here he says, but... Either way, whether I come to you or not, and I love that because he's 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 still open-handed. He, he knows God has a plan for him, but he's still ready and willing to do whatever and depart or go back to see the Philippians. So he says, whether whether or not I see you or, uh, or, or not, I, I want to hear from you these things. And Paul then does us a favor and describes what a citizen of heaven is like and to live a, a life worthy of um, a man, in the manner of a worthy of the gospel, he describes it right here. It, it means to stand in firm in one spirit. And remember this also, a pause. Um, this whole letter is written to the whole church. And so all the yous in Philippians are y'alls. Um, y'all, only let y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see y'all or am, uh, or whether, uh, or am absent, I may hear of y'all that you are standing firm, all of you. Um, so, so, so just keep that in mind. And so here's how a citizen of heaven looks. Um, he's together with the whole church, standing firm in one spirit. We all are. And with one mind striving side by side, not frightened in anything by our opponents, and then later on in verses 28 through 30, it describes further this opposition they're facing as a result that they should suffer for his sake and engage in conflict. And we'll look at that later. 
Does this passage describe our experience? Is this the way you see yourself participating in the mission of this body of believers at WCC? Is this language you would use to describe your experience at WCC? If someone asks you, like, what's it like being part of WCC? Would you say that? Would you, oh, you know, we're striving side by side. We're standing firm as one. We're not frightened in anything by our opponents. We are suffering for his sake. We are engaged in the same conflict that Paul and the early church had. Is that how we describe it? I'm not sure I would describe my, uh, my, my participation here that way. Paul is speaking specifically, though, into their context, their suffering, the suffering and conflict and opposition that they faced. And it was open and it was external. It was opposition that found them. They didn't have to go out and look for it. It was very blatant. It, was, it came to them. They were thrown in prison because of it. So this is one of the challenges I face as I meditated on this passage this week. It seems like a passage that doesn't really apply to our situation at first. And still sometimes. And, and nonetheless, though, here we are. And we have to trust God's providence that, that we're here now in this context with this passage, and, and God has something for us. So let's keep going. Um, question number three, we're, we're there. How, then, should we proclaim the gospel? We looked at um, who should proclaim it. We looked at what gospel we should proclaim, and now how should we proclaim it? In verses 27 through 28, it says it. Together, we should do it together. Side by side, standing firm in one spirit, together, not frightened anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, verse 28 goes on, but of your salvation and that from God. I have written in my Bible on the side uh, of this passage, Band of Brothers. And I've seen, you know, I haven't fought in a war, but I've seen the movies and, you know, it's a good series, although violent and has some language, so viewer discretion advised, but... But um, it's this camaraderie that's built upon having a common um, fight, a common conflict. And, and there's nothing that brings community together faster than when we are fighting together for a common cause. When we train together, get deployed together, we got each other's backs. Yet is that our experience? Is that how you describe your community here? There are three reasons that I think we would form community here at WCC. Three reasons I could see. Number one, because we want to for our friendship, right? For fellowship. And that's a good thing. Um, number two, because we need to for growth. And number three, because we have to for survival. So there's nothing wrong with the first one wanting it. It's good. God created us for a relationship, right? Number two, it's great to recognize we need community for growth. I need people to encourage me, to spur me on, to hold me accountable. I was just encouraged this morning by a sister in my CG, and I, and I needed it. But do we get a sense of the third one ever, that we have to have community because I need you to get my back, because I'm going out to war, I'm going to advance the gospel in the face of opposition and suffering and engaging in conflict, so I need you, I have to have you for survival. And honestly, I would love that sense of urgency, but I don't have it very often, maybe if ever. I want community, I need community, but I don't have to have community. 
Right now, in this context, we don't need each other to advance the gospel. I don't need anyone to watch my back. Maybe pray for me, wish me well, and if you remember to follow up with me the next time we meet, that's great, that's okay, but, and I, but I got this. It's easy in a context built on rugged individualism like we have and privacy fences to have this attitude, isn't it? I don't have to have a community. One of the reasons we have to fight for community is because we don't need community to fight, I believe. We don't need it. We, we got this. We're individuals. I have no doubt that if it became clear to us that we actually had some external opponents who were actively trying to stop WCC's advancement of the gospel, that we would have community like we've never seen here. If the threat of prison or worse were upon us, I believe a couple things would happen. We would see who the true followers of Jesus were in his church, and we would um, God would purify it, and we would grow and advance the gospel like never before. People would come to know the Lord like never before. Right now, I feel like we're in this kind of Cold War scenario. We don't really have open opposition, people stopping us forcefully, although it's growing, right? Our opposition's growing. At least we don't have it anywhere near what Paul and the Philippians had it or other believers around the world have it. Not yet. It's coming someday. And I asked a few guys I know who have served our country in the military and law enforcement this question. I emailed them this question. I said, seeking to apply this passage to our context, I was wondering if you could quickly speak into how to stay focused, prepared, trained up, even deployed into a foreign land, all the while expecting there to be little engagement in actual battle and conflict. Even an extended time of relative peace, but remaining ready at any moment to engage. Or even should we go where the fight is? Should we pick the fight? I asked. And here are some of their comments. Here's the first one. Regarding staying focused and battle ready in times when you don't really expect the battle, that is a challenge. When I was deployed, we didn't necessarily expect to do battle with the insurgents. They were too cowardly and too smart for that. Instead, their tactic was to just blow us up with roadside bombs. So it was paramount for our safety and our continued existence that we remain vigilant every time we left the base for patrol, search, or whatever. Now, church family, like think about the, these responses and think about this as a, as a metaphor for our, our context, how we prepare to advance the gospel. Think about this as a metaphor. Here's the next comment. Regarding going to where the fight is, our military definitely does that, but our military doesn't pick fights. As a Christian, I think we should do both. Going where the fight is maybe is like hanging out with non-believers and hoping you will rub off on them. But picking the fight is when you intentionally engage someone on the subject of faith, salvation, and eternity. Next comment. As a soldier, I have to rely on my training, my preparation, and my courage. And that courage comes from love. Soldiers like Christians die for their cause because of the fact that they love their brothers in arms. Soldiers will risk their lives advancing their cause for the sake of the love they have for their country, their families, and their fellow soldiers. But where the metaphor breaks down is this. Christians will only stand firm for the gospel in the face of physical violence if they love God and they love each other. And we can only love God if we know ourselves and if we know at the deepest level of our heart that there are no idols between ourselves and our Father. Remember what I said earlier, anything that we're not willing to tear down that's between us and our Father. 
Next comment. I have spent countless hours training with my pistol and my rifle, being trained to use them at a moment's notice. The training developed unconscious response and reflex when and if it was needed. I knew two things. Sometimes war would be brought to me against my choice. Other times I would take war to them. And I trained and prepared for both. I did not know from day to day which scenario I'd be faced with. Last comment. My unit consisted of around 20 soldiers. We trained together, laughed together, cried together, and shared each other's burdens. Divorce, sickness, stress, and sometimes even death. Basically, we were a community group. Because of our closeness and our trust for each other, we never hesitated to cover each other or put our lives in each other's hands when we had those war situations. May our WCC community groups be as close and reliable, not with guns and rifles, but with the truth of the gospel. Amen, right? So here's what I was thinking, maybe an application point for us. I mean, really, how do we do this in our context? And maybe this is it. Maybe we have to just keep going until we find the opposition. And then once we find it, keep going while the opposition finds us. And then keep going until we don't just need community to keep going, but we, we have to have it. We have to have it for survival. Our preparedness, our preparedness shouldn't just be training, 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 being prepared for an attack or being ready to defend only or, or preparing to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. I mean, yes, we need to do that, but and we can't advance the gospel when we stay put. There's no movement in standing still, but we need to go out, advance, press on gain ground for the gospel, and we should do it together, right? How, right? G good luck with that. Um, but there it is. Verse 29 through 30, let me continue on. It says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And I have to confess, after processing this passage this week, I've had a really bad and discouraged attitude about all this for the last, I don't know, a year? I mean, I've been asking questions like, is God closing the door here for the advancement of the gospel in Windsor, Colorado? And I'm just confessing this to you, to you, church family. Like, I'm just, I've been convicted. This is where the passage hit me. I've just had this bad attitude, this kind of despairing attitude. Is God closing the door here? I mean, he does that in scripture. When he sends out the disciples two by two, he tells them to shake the dust off their feet when, when people don't respond. And so just thinking that the soil is too hard here to make an impact. Where are all the people coming to know Jesus, coming into this citizenship of heaven? People don't need Jesus here, I've thought, you know, but they, I've told people this. They, they have apps they have AC and Wi-Fi and choices and more than one car and safety and running water that's also hot and, and no one is shooting at us. We have myriad other gospels and saviors that are saving and sustaining us in our culture, right? And on and on. And I'm convicted. God in his providence put me here though, right? Me here and you here. And he made us citizens of heaven by his grace. And so, sh so we should act like one here and now. And in my opinion... Though, it's harder here to advance the gospel than in places of open conflict and opposition. And 
it's easier, right? Depending on your perspective. No one's shooting at us. It should be easier. But it's harder because we have a harder time finding a reason because there's no fight. There's no, I don't have to do this. But either way, it doesn't matter, right? Because we're here. And so what am I going to do about it until God moves us? What are we going to do about it? In the Philippian context, the opposition found them. In our context, we have to go out and find it. And are we willing to go out? Church family, are we willing to go out and find the opposition? I'm not saying we should go out and, in order to advance the gospel, in order to find suffering or, or find conflict or wish for it, but maybe we should behave as citizens of his kingdom, as one, striving side by side, etc., in such a way that if there is any opposition out there, they'll find us and they'll bring it to us. It, it'll, it'll be easy to find it. Are we living like that? Question number five, why should we proclaim the gospel? I'm going to read, kind of break from Philippians here for a second and go to John 4, a familiar passage where Jesus is going through Samaria on his way up to Galilee from Judah. And the text says he had to pass through Samaria in John 4, 4, but he didn't have to. I mean, you might be familiar with this. There's a path that goes around Samaria because Jews hated Samaritans because they were half-breeds and and all this. They worshipped them the wrong way. They worshipped the wrong place and all these things. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. He went because he needed to meet this woman, right? This woman at the well. It's a familiar place. Let me read chapter um, John chapter 4, verse 10 through 15. And this is all hoping to answer the question, why should we proclaim the gospel? Jesus answered her when they, you know, she, he already asked her for water and they were there and here's the scene. And, and Jesus, as they're talking, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone drinks. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then then we know what happens, right? Like she's thinking earthly kingdom, he's speaking heavenly kingdom. And then Jesus looked right into her soul and told her all about her situation, right? He, he pointed out her sin. He knew she was living with a guy and, and wasn't married. And he knew her, yet he didn't leave. He stayed with her. Verse 25 Pick it up there through 29. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, and now listen to her message. Listen to the way she proclaimed this gospel. She said, 
Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Come see a man. He knew her. He knew her and he didn't blush. He didn't abandon. He didn't laugh. He stayed. He had every reason to rebuke her. He was a man. He was a rabbi. He was a Jew. She was a woman, a Samaritan, living in sin. He had every reason to rebuke her and leave her, but he stayed. The disciples were indignant though, right? Verse 31 through 38. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And so they're thinking earthly kingdom, right? And he's he's speaking of heavenly kingdom stuff. And And it's true, right? The people here don't need Jesus if the Jesus we're trying to sell them is born out of a gospel that's merely circumstantial, a gospel of stuff and water and bread and miracles, mansions, no more tears, pain and death. All those are only results of the true gospel, a gospel of relationship, good news that satisfies the deepest longing of the soul. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is speaking of eternal fruit, eternal kingdom, heavenly kingdom stuff. So maybe when sharing the good news with someone, the first question we ask shouldn't be about improving their circumstances, like where they will go, but rather just this. Would you like to come see a man who told me all that I ever did, who sees right into my soul, And he stayed with me anyway. Wouldn't it be better to to share that gospel, a gospel of a person, a relationship? Jesus, a person who laid aside his heavenly relational citizenship with the Father who came into exile as a sojourner here, as a citizen of earth. He subjected himself to every horrid circumstance and situation on the cross and through this life. He subjected himself to torture. He he was robbed of his life, his liberty, and his pursuit of happiness so that we could be brought into relationship with his father and find our home. Find our home. Our greatest circumstance being the long the longing of our heart in his arms. That's the gospel. Let's strive side by f- side for that. The field, the, the, the harvest is ready. It's white for the harvest. Dear Father, we come before you as a, as a church family um, that is prone to independence, prone to um, try to do things on our own because we live in this culture that tells us that's possible. Lord, it's, we live in a culture where the earthly 
kingdom around us and our earthly citizenship is, is taking precedence over everything else. And Lord, we are tempted to build our kingdoms here, Lord. But God, we pray, um, God, we desperately pray that you will help us to see our identity as citizens of heaven, that it, it's all about our relationship with you, Father, um, you, a, a person, and not the circumstances or situations, the good things that you're going to give us as a result of that relationship. All are good, but Lord, really, the longing of our hearts is to, to grow in our knowledge of you and our relationship with you so that we might go out and not be afraid by our opponents or any circumstance so that we might bring others into that relationship with a person so that others might become citizens of heaven. Lord, may that be true of us as a church. Would you go before us? We need you to do that. Help us do that side by side and not apart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.